Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You know that fresh produce is the best produce. That's why at Kroger, we invest in local farmers to bring you seasonal picks that taste fresh from the farm good like sweet corn, refreshing watermelon, and juicy peaches. So whether you're a delivery lover, a picker-upper, or you shop in-store, your local produce always tastes 100% fresh, or you get a 100% refund guaranteed. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver. And today we will talk about the tremendous fights that occurred Saturday night, Saturday afternoon. We had fights all over the world. Uh, the three major fights we'll be talking about, Lawrence Acoli defending his Alphabet Cruiserweight Championship against David Light. Uh, David Benavidez against Caleb Plant in a WBC title eliminator. And Jose Ramirez versus Richard Comey in a couple of undercard fights from the Benavidez Plant uh, card that I will also discuss. Uh, another Q&A session. And this week we have an historical overview that I'll be reading that I wrote. On my third greatest fighter of the last 45 years, the incomparable Roy Jones. But before we begin the podcast, once again, I want to hammer. I'm going to keep hammering this to you guys because it's a project that is dear to my heart. In my opinion, it's the best podcasting I've ever done. And that's my Patreon exclusive series on the life and times of Muhammad Ali. For $5 a month, the link is in the description of this podcast, you'll hear my monthly series on the life and times of Muhammad Ali in which I take a look at 10 of his biggest fights, the 10 biggest fights of Muhammad Ali's career, month by month. I break down what was going on in the country, what was going on in Ali's career, Ali's personal life during that time as told by my father because I wasn't alive at the very beginning and I didn't start watching boxing until 1977 when, when Ali was way past his prime. But the stories I talk about, the facts I bring up, the figures I bring up, this is all taught to me by my father who died 23 years ago. And my father would tell me all the time, well, this was what Ali was doing, blah, blah, blah. So far... The first two episodes are available on the Patreon feed. Um, Ali's first round knockout of Sonny Liston, their May 1965 rematch. And his 12-round battering of Floyd Patterson, November of 1965. One last thing I do is I do a watch-along. And I, for I forget to tell you people this. I forgot to tell the Patreon listeners out there. When you 
So when when and if you subscribe to the Patreon page and you go to the episode, I do a reenactment of the fight in my announcing. I announce each fight. Footage put on the YouTube channel by my friend from the UK, Martin. The YouTube channel was Vintage Boxing. Pristine, pristine, pristine footage. And what I want you guys to do, I will tell you during the Patreon what the timestamp is to go to the to the beginning of the fight where I will start the broadcast. But I also need you guys to mute the podcast. I mean, mute, mute the the footage. That way you'll hear. That way you'll hear my announcing without any interference from the original broadcast, the original announcing of the footage on. The Vintage Boxing YouTube channel and the fight that we're talking about. I announced the fight in its entirety, and throughout the during the fight, I will bring up facts and figures about both fighters, what was going on during the fight, and as I announce each fight. And every once in a while, I'll go into my Howard Kelsell impersonation, but not a lot, because that man right there, the OG Rob Silver. He's a phenomenal announcer in his own right. $5 a month. You also will hear my 10 greatest upsets in boxing history. That's on that feed. As well as Garrett Gonzalez and I and, and me reviewing last year's Hulu docuseries on Mike Tyson. A four-part podcast series that we did covering all eight episodes of that controversial series that was shown on Hulu. Now we go to Saturday's fights. First, we go to the fight that occurred during the afternoon. Lawrence Acoli defending his WBO Alphabet Soup Cruiserweight title against David Light. And Lawrence Acoli, who has impressed me in the past, I've always said that this guy has the ability to be an all time great. He mailed it in Saturday afternoon. He looked lackluster. He looked listless. He was holding way too much against an inferior opponent in David Light. This dude, David Light, can't fight. He was a punching bag for 12 rounds. He just stood there and took jab after right. And for some un, for some unforeseen reason, Okoli would jab right and then grab David Light. Why? Why? He was even taking a point away for doing that in the 11th round. Uh, Akoli batted Light throughout the entire fight, but he looked listless. And it looked like one of those times, ladies and gentlemen, where Lawrence figured all I had to do was show up and I could knock this guy out. No, Light took a tremendous shot, went all 12 rounds, but he severely limited Light. Light I guess this was his first real opponent because I had never heard of the clown. Lawrence Acoli, the cruiserweight division right now is dormant. It's all but dead. The the talent in the in the cruiserweight division is at a very all time low. Uh, the only fight that I want to see Acoli in is with Badu Jack to unify two of those alphabet soup titles, and I think it would be the biggest payday of Acoli's life. I know most cruiserweight champions, uh, their mouth starts watering when thinking about going to the, to heavyweight. But look, Okoli, I don't think 
has the punching power to carry the heavyweight. Uh, and uh, I guess the bridgeweight division that the WBC tried to force on us a couple years ago is dead because I haven't heard shit about that bogus division in over a year. Okay, so Akoli wins, but he was not impressive. Let's stop with the holding. Let's stop with the pouring of the jab. Uh, his his team, his training team, has to condition him better too because in the 11th and 12th round, he was exhausted, holding way too much against a guy that wasn't even trying to beat him. So enough said about that horrendous fight and a very lackluster performance by Lawrence Acoli. Now, on to Fresno, California, where Jose Ramirez, who is Fresno's number one and probably only uh, uh, franchise, sports fran- other than Fresno State, uh, Jose Ramirez... Reminds me of the time back in the 1980s, early 90s, when Tony Lopez was Sacramento's franchise uh, player before they got the Sacramento Kings. And um, Tony the Tiger Lopez would sell out every one of his fights in Sacramento. Well, that's what Jose Ramirez does in Fresno. And and he, he took on Richard Comey in a... Junior welterweight, super lightweight title eliminator. I believe the winner is supposed to get a shot at Regis Prograce WBC title. And the first three rounds, Ramirez took it to Comey. Comey, 36 going on, 37. His legs are no longer there. All he has left is that nice left jab and powerful right cross. But the first three rounds, he was up against the ropes and he was getting hammered. And then little by little, he started creeping into the fight. I gave... The first three rounds to Ramirez. I gave the next three rounds to Kami. Then I had seven and eight split. And after eight rounds, I had it dead even. After ten rounds, I had it dead even. Because Kami, in the middle of the fight, after surviving a hellacious beating in the first three rounds, began to land his jab and straight right hand as Ramirez slowed down. His output went from throwing 80 punches in the first round to... The thir- uh, throwing thirty to forty something punches in the middle of the middle of the fight. After ten rounds, I had Kami dead even with Ramirez as he was landing that right hand over and over again. Ramirez's defense is disgraceful. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I mentioned this, I believe, last week or the week before. Defense in boxing is like defense in the NBA right now; it's non-existent. Um, other than Shakur Stevenson. And uh, what's my brother's name? Sonny Edwards, who are two elite defensive fighters. Nobody else seems to want to practice defense in boxing. These guys are getting hit and hit and hit. Ramirez got hit by too many right hands. There's no way in the world he's going to be able to, to, to stop Regis Prograce. But you know what? I'll hold that thought until they fight, if they fight, because... uh. Regis Prograce is one of the most duck fighters on the planet right now, and he and he's a world champion. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. 
Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. That was the main event of that card. Early on, earlier in that card, they had some dude named El Gigante who looks just like the former El Gigante slash Giant Gonzalez, Jorge Gonzalez, that was a Argentinian basketball player. Uh, he was drafted by Atlanta Hawks, got hurt, and then WCW trained him to be a wrestler. He was a horrible wrestler. And from what I see of this boxer named El Gigante, he's as good as Jorge Gonzalez was, El Gigante was as a wrestler. Enough said about that. And then we go to the card in Vegas. The Caleb Plant David Benavidez card. But before I talk about the main event, we have a early candidate for worst decision of the year, robbery of the year. Jose Valenzuela dropped Chris Colbert in the first round, and he hurt Colbert over and over again throughout the 10 round. And with 30 seconds left in the fight, Valenzuela staggered Colbert. Colbert was out on his feet when the bell rang. And yet, Colbert, Won on all three scorecards, 95-94, meaning that three judges gave him six rounds. Where did you find six rounds for Chris Colbert? I had given seven rounds to Valenzuela. Valenzuela was hurting Colbert all the time. Colbert's defense is shot. Colbert is going to get seriously hurt if they ever put him in with a Frank Martin or Tank Davis. Oh, even the rapist, Raleigh Romero, would knock Chris Colbert out. Chris Colbert, his career is coming to an end soon. He'll be washed up for the next two years if he continues because that man's defense is gone and you can't put the horse back in the barn. The horse is out. Chris Colbert was exposed by Hector Luis Garcia and this fight further shows his regression. He got lucky with a robbery if they fight again. And Valenzuela deserves a rematch because he got robbed. Oh, Valenzuela is going to knock Colbert out next time they fight. Then we had Joey, I've beat nothing but bum Spencer against one of the best super middleweight, uh, super welterweight prop prospects on the planet in Jesus Ramos. And just I predict, just as I predicted, Ramos dropped him in the first round. He dropped Spencer in the first round, and he. Batted Spencer for seven rounds. Joey Spencer, another graduate of the Arturo Gatti School of Defense. The man's best defense is his chin. He cannot avoid any punches. Ramos batted him until finally the fight was stopped in the seventh round. Uh, This fight doesn't prove anything to me as far as Ramos goes because Joey Spencer, even though he was undefeated, beat nothing but a bunch of Uber drivers. He's a stiff. Um, I need to see Jesus Ramos step up and maybe fight a Tony Harrison if Tony Harrison wants to continue his career. We will see. 
I wouldn't I wouldn't mind seeing Jesus Ramos in a year from now. Fight Tim Zhu. Win or lose Tim Zhu versus Charlo. We will see. And now the main event. I didn't make a prediction last week on the show because I forgot about talking about this fight. But a shout out to uh my buddy from Detroit, John Lewis on Twitter. He uh he tweeted asking me who I thought was gonna win, so my prediction streak continues. I predicted that Benavides would win by a lopsided unanimous decision, a clear-cut unanimous decision. But didn't look like that for the first six rounds. For the first six rounds, I had to fight dead even as Caleb was moving. You had a 22-foot ring. Last time I saw a 22-foot ring was November of 1980, the Nomas fight, Sugar Ray Leonard versus Roberto Duran. A 22-foot ring made Leonard damn near impossible for Duran to hit as he had extra room to move. Caleb was moving, but he was moving far too much. Once again, something my father taught me as a little boy unnecessary movement Caleb moved so much that he wore himself out he didn't have to keep moving the way he did there were times where he could have stood in the middle ring and just popped that jab it was being effective but by him moving and moving he wore himself down he threw a lot of punches um he was landing the jab and he was landing a nice left hook counter but David Benavides much bigger than Caleb Plant didn't feel the punches and was walking Plant down. Beginning with the seventh round, Benavides started to attack Plant's body, and he landed hellacious body shot after hellacious body shot, and then he began to bust Plant's face up. By the ninth round, Plant's nose was busted open. He was getting smashed, and um, Plant showed a lot of heart in, in surviving, but he took a hellacious beating the last three rounds, 10 to 12. He was beaten from pillar to post. Benav- I had the fight scored 117-111 Benavides as I gave him the last six rounds after having the first six rounds even. And Benavides won by unanimous decision and well-deserved victory for, for David Benavides. Benavides proves that he's the best 168-pounder not named Saul Canelo Alvarez. After Canelo beats up John Ryder, because John Ryder has no business fighting Canelo, there has to be Benavidez versus Canelo. Canelo can't fight anybody else at 168. No excuses. I need to see Benavidez versus Canelo in September. Two Mexican boxers, one's a Mexican-American, the other's a Mexican, fight it out doing Mexican Independence Weekend. We need that fight. That fight will be phenomenal. It will be a fight of the year type fight. Because while Canelo is a gifted boxer, Benavidez is going to bring to him and and Canelo is going to have to fight. No safety thing. Canelo is going to have to fight the way he fought against, against James Kirkland, the way he fought against Triple G the second fight. He's going to have to bring his best in order to beat Benavides, and Benavides has to bring his best in order to beat Canelo. Right now, in my opinion, it's a 50-50 fight. I'm not leaning towards anybody. I need to see the fight, though. I don't need to see Canelo face another bum from England. All right. On to the Q&A portion of the podcast. Okay, before I begin the Ask Rob Silver session of the podcast, I want to uh, remind those 
that follow me on Twitter, Robert Silver 5768 that if you want your questions answered on the pod, hashtag ask Rob Silver, hashtag A-S-K-R-O-B-S-I-L-V as in Victor A, and I will answer whatever questions you have. It just doesn't have to be boxing. You could it could be baseball, it could be basketball, it could be about love, movies, shit, pro wrestling, whatever you want, whatever you want to ask Rob Silver, ask Rob Silver. Okay, we've got a, a, just a few questions this week. LL School K first asked, do you think Joe Lewis would have been able to hang with modern heavyweights? I don't do the, uh, I don't do the fantasy fights. I don't do... A guy that whose prime was in the was in the late thirties to early forties in Joe Lewis versus fighters that are damn near a foot taller than him, not eighty to ninety years later. So, um, if Joe Lewis happened to be six foot three to six foot five with and weigh two fifty with the same skill set he had in the nineteen thirties nineteen forties. He would be very competitive, and I'll leave it at that. But once again, LL, thanks for your questions. Every week you bring up great questions. Now, from Mark Stoy, Mackahill, he asked, "Do you remember what George Foreman's? Do you remember what George Foreman's legacy was like after he retired the first go around? Hard for me to see him any other way from his comeback." Okay. What his legacy was, Mark, and I broke down George's comeback last week on the podcast, but I'll talk about where I felt he was legacy-wise when he first retired in 1977. When he retired in 1977, he had only lost two times. He was an undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. He knocked out Joe Frazier twice, meaning we didn't have a Hall of Fame until 1990, 1991. And... And by that point in time, George had already come back. He came back in 1987. So if there was a Hall of Fame, George Foreman would have been a first ballot Hall of Famer because he was one of the most ferocious heavyweights of all time. He had one of the greatest jabs in heavyweight history. He was one of the biggest punches, top two, three punches in heavyweight history. He knocked out Joe Frazier twice. Joe Frazier was undefeated, coming off beating Muhammad Ali when George Foreman almost killed him that night in Kingston, Jamaica. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! George Foreman was already a first battle Hall of Fame, but his, like I mentioned last week on the podcast, his return to boxing and from 1987 to 1997, he put himself in my all-time top 10 heavyweight list by knocking out Michael Mora to become the oldest heavyweight champion of all time In at the age of 45. He gave Evander Holyfield hell in one of Holyfield's toughest fights of Holyfield's early career. So George Foreman solidified his legacy but as far as his original retirement his legacy was already set in stone as a first ballot hall of famer he just made himself an even greater legacy with his return and his 10-year return so uh thanks again mark for a great question okay so i have a final question and this is from 
Nice guy Eddie. Let me pick it up because he, he DM'd me this question. Nice guy nice guy Eddie ask. Let me see if I get it. Where you at, nice guy? All right, here you go. He said that uh the Bayless refereeing was ugly. What do you think about Bayless ref refereeing the fight, the Benavides plant fight? Also, I can't wait to hear what you thought about that Cobra decision. Well, I answered the Cobra decision. Cobra, that was the worst decision this year so far. My leading candidate for robbery of the year. Horrible decision. Valenzuela kicked his ass, period. End of story. Uh, as far as Kenny Bayless goes, Eddie, Kenny Bayless needs Kenny Bayless needs to retire. Uh, this has gone on too often in the last four or five years where he gets in, he gets too involved in a fight. He's too quick to break up fighters in a clinch. He doesn't let them work their way out. He's too hands-on. It's like he needs to put his television time in. And I love Kenny Bayless. To me, he's a Hall of Fame referee. But the last five years has put a stain on his legacy, and he should retire. Now, if he needs the money and he needs the kitchen to, to, to ref, then state commissions need, a, need, him to, need him to only referee opening bouts. He should no longer get a big-time assignment. And Kenny Bayless, along with Tony Reeks and Jack Reese, uh, are always at the top of the food chain when it comes to big-time fight assignments. You need to take Kenny Bayless off that list. I still love Tony Weeks. And um, who's the other guy I mentioned? I mentioned Tony Weeks, Ken ba Kenny Bayless. And who's the other guy I mentioned that they always use? Oh, Jack Reese. Uh, Jack Reese has had a very good career. Kenny Bayless was having a Hall of Fame career, but the last five years, I don't know. It's He's been slipping. He needs to retire. Or... At the least, just referee opening fights. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's the end of the Q&A session. And now we go on to my historical overview of Roy Jones Jr. And as I wrote, let me get what I wrote, my historical overview of Roy Jones Jr. Here we go. As I've stated many times on this website, I started watching boxing in January of 1977. In my now, 47 years of watching boxing, the single greatest fighter I've ever seen, and now my historical overview on Roy Jones. As I've stated many times on this website, I started watching boxing in January of 1977. In my 46 years of watching boxing, the most dominant fighter I've ever seen for a 10-year period between 1993 and 2003 was Roy. Between 1993 and 2003, Roy was the closest thing to a perfect fighter that ever lived. Incredible speed, reflexes, and punching power, Jones was a marvel to watch. It was during the early part of this unprecedented 10-year run of dominance that saw Roy emerge as the greatest super middleweight of all time. It was that entire 10-year run period that easily cemented his position as the third greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Jones turned pro after completely after being completely fleeced at the 1988 Seoul Olympics, criminally losing a decision in the junior middleweight gold medal fight to South Korean Park Si-hoon. Jones completely dominated every round before getting his gold medal stolen. That loss was definitely a motivating factor in Jones's hunger to be as dominating in his pro career as possible. 
a year after beating Bernard Hopkins to win the vacant IBF middleweight championship, Jones moved up to super middleweight to face the consensus best fighter in the world at the time, James Lights Out Tony. Going into the November 18, 1994 fight with Tony, Jones decided to let Jones decided to let Tony do all the talking at the pre-fight press conferences throughout the country. Jones was just as verbally loquacious as Tony, and it seemed odd that Jones would allow Tony to continually talk smack with no verbal comebacks. Jones let his talent do the talking in route to handing the IBF 168-pound king a one-sided boxing lesson. Tony looked like a zombie that night as he had no answer for the speed and skill of Jones. My father and I thought the same thing while watching the fight that Jones gave Tony a ton of respect by not attempting to knock him out. After winning the IBF super middleweight crown, Jones would then embark on a two-year period in one of the most dominating title reigns in boxing history. Jones' first defense of his 168-pound crown occurred on March 18, 1995 against Antoine Bird in Roy's Pensacola, Florida hometown. Jones' power was on all cylinders that night as he destroyed Bird in about two minutes of the opening stanza. Jones followed this up on June 24, 1995 with an incredible display of both offense and defense against longtime favorite and two-time world champion Vinny Pazienza. In the fourth round of a fight that Jones totally dominated, he pitched a shutout as Pazienza did not land a single punch. I watched this fight with both my best friend and girlfriend at the time. This performance of Jones, which was mercifully stopped in the six rounds, made both of them instant fans of Jones. Jones ended a sensational 1995 by decimating the sturdy chin Tony Thornton in the third round on September 30th, once again in front of his Pensacola faithful. Jones' next fight on January 12, 1996 would be the first time I would get to see him live and in person. The same young lady who was mesmerized by his performance against Pazienza accompanied me to Madison Square Garden that night to see him fight Murky Sosa. Sosa was a granite chin slugger who was tailor-made for Jones' speed and power. In the second round, Sosa, after being dropped by Jones, was defenseless and saved by referee Ken Zimmer's stoppage of the fight. At that point in time, Jones was as indestructible as any fighter I had ever seen in my entire life of watching boxing. Jones was so superior to anyone who could climb in the ring that he decided to stage a gimmick in his next fight. On June 15, 1996, as a way to cultivate HBO viewers to see his fight and have fans come see him fight in Jacksonville, Florida, Jones played a professional basketball game the afternoon of the fight. Playing guard with the USBL Jacksonville Barracudas, Jones played 21 minutes in the game. Then, that same evening, he defended his IBF super middleweight title against Eric Lucas. Playing in the game did not affect his performance at all as he put on another virtuoso performance before beating Lucas. Oh, I believe the per, the the per, uh, proper pronunciation is Luca because I believe Eric Luca was a French Canadian before Luca retired in his corner after the eleventh round. This night proved what both my father and I have been telling people for two years: Roy Jones was the greatest athlete ever to step into a boxing ring. My lady at the time and I once again, once again attended Jones' next and final fight at super middleweight, October 4th, 1996, against Brian Brandon. Once again, Jones was stunning in another second-round destruction.
Rob, Roy is the closest I've seen to a per- to a perfect fighter since Ali before they blackballed him. Those were the words my father wrote on a piece of paper after we attended our final fight together on June on January fifteenth, two thousand, at New York's historic Radio City Music Hall. My father, battling stage four throat cancer that would end his life six months later at the age of fifty-two, had lost his vocal cords due to the deadly disease. However, on the night in question, all you needed to see was the gleam in his eyes watching Roy Jones that night perform a one-sided 12-round masterpiece against a solid but overmatched David Telesco. Those eyes told just how amazing a fighter was, fighter Jones was, and that's why I have Jones as my fourth greatest light heavyweight of all time. After a flawless and incredible two-year run at 168 pounds, Jones fought the legendary Jamaican Mike McCollum on November 22, 1996 for the WBC light heavyweight vacant title. Because of Jones' immense respect for McCollum, he held back in this fight as the body snatcher was 40 years old and way past his prime. Jones was content to box from the outside and comfortably win a 12-round decision as a sign of his respect and love for McCollum's achievements in boxing. It was akin to Sugar Ray Robinson's August 27, 1943 win over way past his prime Henry Armstrong, as Ray also held back and decided to outbox the legendary Armstrong. It would be Jones' next fight that would open up old wounds for him. The single worst decision that ever occurred on any level in boxing amateur and pro happened at the aforementioned 1988 Seoul Olympics when Jones was robbed of the light middleweight gold medal. This nightmare repeated itself the night of March 21st, 1997 in Jones' first title defense against Montel Griffin. Jones inadvertently hit Griffin with a combination after Griffin took a knee. Immediately, Griffin appeared to put on the acting performance of a lifetime as he appeared to feign unconsciousness, which resulted in Jones being disqualified and losing his title to Griffin. It would be an understatement to say Roy was furious at how he lost his title and undefeated pro record. It would motivate him to put on one of the most destructive knockouts in boxing history. Jones received an immediate rematch against Griffin on August 7th, 1997. Just seconds into the fight, Jones landed three left-hook bombs, the third of which resulted in Griffin being knocked into the ropes. Referee Arthur McCanty ruled a knockdown. Jones then, not unlike a Tiger Alpha Blood, kept firing his signature left-hook until he landed another leaping left-hook, that completely concussed Griffin. Griffin tried getting up twice from that punch, but stumbled before being counted out. Jones' second reign at 175 pounds would commence. It was the beginning of a seven-year reign that was probably the most dominating title reign, title reign in the history of the division. His next fight on August 25, 1998, occurred against the former two-time light heavyweight champion Virgil Hill. Hill, while not a devastating puncher, was one of the purest boxers in the history of the division and possessor of possibly the greatest left jab in the division's history as well. The first three rounds saw Jones definitely land several right-hand counters over Hill's jab. Then in round four, Jones landed a picture-perfect right hand to Hill's ribcage that made Hill drop like he was stabbed. After valiantly getting up at the count of nine, Hill was in no condition to continue. It was another highlight knockout by Roy. I took my father to see Roy's next fight at Madison Square Garden on July 18th, 1998 against Lou Duvall. 
to unify W Jones WBC and DeVal's WBA title. DeVal was a tough Puerto Rican softball who grew up in infamous Queensbridge, New York City housing projects. For the first seven rounds, Jones toyed with DeVal as he landed at will and played to the NYC crowd. Late in the eighth round, DeVal landed a left cross that dropped Jones for the first time in his career. My father and I couldn't believe it. Jones was human after all. After recovering from the knockdown, Jones safely outboxed DeVal the rest of the night to win via unanimous decision and unified the two titles. That, that night, my father stated that the only way to beat Jones was to engage in a firefight with him because that night, my father discovered that Jones was chinny. It was Jones' speed, reflexes, and power that didn't allow for his chin to get tested. It wouldn't be until six years later, after Jones had lost a step, that my father's revelation that night would come to fruition. Jones unified the 135-pound title by defeating the IBF champion Reggie Johnson on June 5, 1999. Johnson was an excellent boxer but had no answers for the machine that was Roy. So-called boxing experts were criticizing Roy for not fighting the WBO champion Darius Mikulczewski. The fact is, Mikulczewski was unwilling to fight Jones in America, and after what happened to Jones in Korea, Jones was not going to Europe to fight Mikulczewski in his adopted Germany. If the fight had ever taken place, Jones would have given the German transplant a a brutal beating. For all intents and purposes, Roy was the undisputed champion of the world after defeating Johnson. The night of the Telesco fight was funny because every time Roy landed his signature leaping left hook or booming right cross, my father would grab my arm and point to the ring. Since Pop couldn't speak, he kept grabbing my arm and pointing to the ring as a way of expressing his amazement at what Roy was doing in the ring. Looking back, I realized just how much fun he had that night despite the fact that we all knew he was dying. Roy's reign finally came to an end in the most shocking way imaginable. On May 15, 2004, Jones was attempting to successfully defend his 175-pound title for the 13th time in almost seven years and the second consecutive time against Antonio Tarver. Tarver gave Jones his toughest fight of his career six months earlier, a fight Jones won by majority decision. In the rematch, midway through the second round, Jones walked into a spectacular left cross that put him to sleep. I thought of my father that night. Tarver, like DelVal, was a softball. Both men landed the same type of punch that dropped Jones, a left cross. It was Tarver's that put Jones' lights out and ended his reign as the fourth greatest light heavyweight of all time. Roy should have retired right then and there. Instead, he continued to fight for almost 15 more years. Four months after getting knocked out by Tarver, he looked completely listless and getting brutally knocked out by Glenn Johnson. Roy would get completely dominated by Tarver a year later in their rubber match. And on November 8, 2008, despite knocking him down in the first round, would suffer a 12-round beating by the great Welshman Joe Calzaghe. These losses are the reasons why Jones' ranking as... Both the all-time, both at 175 pounds and pound for pound are not higher. He fought way past his prime. Between 1993 to 2003, Roy Jones was the greatest fighter I ever saw in my lifetime. A near per- picture-perfect fighter. And a man who made my father smile in amazement while battling a terminal illness. All of this adds up to Roy Jones Jr. being the third greatest fighter of the last 45 years ladies and gentlemen before I continue I want to make a prediction on next week's uh, Anthony Joshua versus uh, Jermaine Franklin fight I see Joshua winning by ninth or 10th round stoppage in a fight that he completely dominates 
So, ladies and gentlemen, until next week, everybody continue to be blessed and be a blessing. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.